Welcome to Internet Misfits, a podcast that explores new, exciting futures and the people building them. We focus on creators and entrepreneurs who see the world differently. I'm Joe Cohen, your host and the founder and CEO of Universe, an app that lets anyone build an amazing website and online store with just their phone. In this podcast, I try to get at the essence of our guests' unique ways of seeing the world and understand really what makes them tick. My hope is that you leave with new learnings, tools, and inspiration to build out your own dreams. Let's dive in. Today, we've got my good friend, Josh Miller, on the podcast. Hello. Very excited to have you here, Josh. Very excited to be here. Very excited to be here. We are recording from New York City in my apartment in the chill zone. I'm probably the coolest looking, most comfy couch I've sat in in a long time. I wish you could see it. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to have a wide ranging conversation. It's going to be a little bit different than the usual one, more conversational, more exploratory. We don't know exactly where we're going to go, but I think it's going to be pretty awesome. It's a prototype. It's a prototype. For some context, for those of you who don't know Josh, Josh is, uh, in addition to being a good friend of mine, the co-founder and creator of The Browser Co., which is building a new web browser and really challenging our ideas about what a browser for the internet can look like. He is also just an experienced tech entrepreneur, started a company way back in the day. We met over a decade ago. We were both starting companies as college dropouts in New York. We've become good friends in the past 10 years. And I'd consider Josh one of the few tech entrepreneurs I know who is very much a polymath and very much interested in a ton of other things and weaves those influences and interests into his work. So I think that today's conversation will really be an exploration around the internet and the future of the internet and the web and where we hope and and think it might go. We're both working on different elements of it. You know, I'm working on Universe, which is a website builder, and Josh is working on Browser Co. or Arc, which is a new browser. So we have different vantages at, I think, a similar future. So yeah, that's some context. Let's, let's Long live the web. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Joe. It's, it's really great to be here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I've known Joe for a decade, and he knows me very, very well. He's seen my ups and very much my downs, and uh, it's really cool to be here. I, I, I'm excited. Okay. So you said it. Long live the web. What do you mean by that? For as long as I've been building software, which is not that long, a decade, there's this kind of consistent talk of what's the next big computing platform. At the beginning of both of our careers, it was mobile. And actually in my first company, I was late to it. I didn't even appreciate the impact that uh, the iPhone, but mobile phones would have. And it felt like for five, six years after that, that's all everyone was talking about. Mobile, mobile, it's going to change the world. It has changed the world. And ever since then, Mm -hmm. I feel like we've been trying to grasp for what the next iPhone is. Mm -hmm. There was this kind of internet things moment uh, you know, fast forward more recently, there have been moments where we've gotten excited about chatbots. Remember chatbots? Now AR, VR, crypto, and everyone's grasping for this the next big computing platform. You know, various definitions of platform, some looser than others. And I just sort of feel, and I know you do too, that maybe the next great computing platform has been sitting in front of us, which is the World Wide Web. And it just feels like there's a resurgence for a bunch of reasons and center of gravity moving back towards the World Wide Web in a different way than maybe when we were growing up. But I mean, there was a lot about the web that I philosophically really have fallen in love with and did early on. And I I know you have as well, but that's what I mean by long live the web. 
I'm curious. I mean, I got to give you credit. You've been working on Universe a lot longer than I've been working on the browser company. And as an old friend and and uh, and someone who inspires me, you're an inspiration for <laughs> rediscovering that love of mm. the web. Uh, and you were you were many years ahead of me and us. So you know, when you decided to start Universe, yeah, uh, it was not air quote cool to build for the web, and it is now. I mean, even a lot of themes that you work on at Universe, modular software, giving agency back to people, mm. a lot of the memes flying around the software industry right now, but the future you've been doing for many years. Like, why do you believe in long live the web? You're ahead of me. <laughs> so for us, it's interesting, actually. Universe has had two lives and its current life is as a website builder, but it had a previous life as not a website builder. Actually, our initial pitch for Universe was not that we were building a website builder, but that we were going to build a new web the grid? Well, the idea was basically you've got mobile phones and in the early 2010, so this is like 2014, the state of the mobile web wasn't very good. And at the same time, we had this sort of surge of amazing apps. And uh, the question became clear to me, which is like, wow, in a world of just apps, we're going to lose something that we really had with the web. Namely, you're going to lose a lightweightness. Like things on the web can be very casual. Your interactions, you can have interactions with thousands of web pages in a week. Anyone can create one of these things. They're all connected to each other and it's open. And I thought, man, in a mobile world, we need something like the web. And I wasn't confident in 2014 that the World Wide Web itself was that because it hadn't been designed for phones. And the experiences on the web at that point in time were really lousy. And so I thought, huh, what if we created a new web? A new web that was based not on web pages, but on what I called cards. And what if all of those cards were created on a phone? That'd be really interesting. And I was really intrigued by creation tools from the 80s and before that really pioneered some core user interfaces that that allowed for kind of visual creation, things like HyperCard that Apple created. But when I eventually released this sort of new web sort of card network, everyone thought it was cool. No one understood what it was for. And at that point, late 2016, the web had gotten better. The experience of the web had gotten better. It also became clear to me that the web wasn't going anywhere. And that the web in a world of dominance... It, it wasn't going anywhere as in it was, it was here for the long term. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. I, thought, I thought there was a point in time. In 2012, if you said like, do you think that the World Wide Web would be around in 10 years as an important platform? I didn't, I, I wasn't sure. And, and I, didn't, I didn't, I think the industry consensus was similar. I think it was like, oh yeah, no, no, the, the web is dead, like apps are the future. But what became clear to me was that, A, the web wasn't going anywhere in you know, late 2016. B, the internet had come to be dominated by companies like Facebook and Google and Snapchat and Apple. And the one thing that wasn't owned by all those companies, but that was embedded in each one of their properties, was the web. And... I just thought as someone building a startup, a startup creation tool, if I need to get distribution for the things that people make with my tool, I want to 
be creating things that can be shared in every platform. And guess what can be shared in every platform? A URL, a website. And so all of the ideas that I had originally had about sort of building a new mobile web, I realized that I can package in a, a way that almost is subversive into the existing web and that you could create a new web through the existing web. And so re-released Universe at that point in time as not this kind of experimental social network, but as actually a tool, a tool for making websites that you could use on your phone that was super open-ended, that had a novel interface to do it. And that worked. And, and, and my conviction in the web has only grown since. I think all of those trends that I picked up on you know, late 2016 have been exacerbated and simultaneously the tech has gotten a lot better. So what's possible in the web now on a phone is just wild, wild. Yeah. And actually I want to call out, what if we built a new web question mark? We need that energy this year. I Mm. I just, it's so inspiring and energizing. I can feel my body, just that, that level of audacity and wondrous possibility it's just refreshing. And yeah. again, you're ahead of the curve by, you know, 10 years. It's- well, I think I learned a lot about that. The big lesson that I learned was that to bring bit, or at least that I'm working on is, I think it's really important to imagine futures that don't exist. But I think the art of making a, an, a possible future exist is like the rarest and hardest art in the world. And especially if it involves many other people and a company that's, that's, you know, a functioning business. And to me, the trick is that you want to take big ideas, big new ideas and package them as familiarly as possible. And you almost want to be um, super ambitious in the idea and extremely not ambitious in the packaging of the idea. Is that hard for you? Because we've done, we followed your playbook, you know, we call it the browser company almost as a misdirection and a bit of a kind of playful mark because we don't view ourselves as building a web browser. We view ourselves as building an internet computer. We don't even have the language for it yet. And however, it's very effective and helpful that everyone knows what a web browser is. And it makes it incredibly effortless to walk into a dinner party and say, hey, I'm I'm making a web browser. Oh, I use Firefox or Safari. However, as someone who is really creative and ambitious and imaginative, sometimes I, oh, I recoil a little inside it. Like, no, it's not just a web browser. What's your experience been with that over time as someone who is trying to imagine a new web? But, you know, I'm sure at times people go, oh, are you a Lincoln bio company? You know, 100%. <laughs> I think a lot about this. At the end of the day, what I care about is the thing working, right? Like I want, I want this future. So I don't really care about how we get there, you know, and I'm willing to figure it out uh, along the way. But I once read about this designer. Um, he was sort of like the Johnny Ive of the, of the 50s. His name was Raymond Lowy. And he was an industrial designer. He designed planes and trains, but he also designed like cereal boxes and, you know, very prosaic things. And he had a principle, he called it M-A-Y-A, Maya, which meant most advanced yet accessible. And his basic framework is that if you are making something that is super futuristic and high tech, you want to package it as familiarly as possible. And if you're making something super familiar and boring, you want to package it as whiz-bang as possible. So if you're designing cereal, you want to make it seem like it's from outer space. (laughs) And if you're making a rocket, you want to make it feel approachable and like a living room in a way. That always really resonated with me as just good design. Like that's, to me, the packaging layer is a, is a matter of good design. I think Apple is actually 
the number one progenitor of this idea. If you think about the iPhone when it came out, it wasn't a phone. It was the coolest computer ever built. It was a pocketable computer that had all-day battery life, that had this amazing touchscreen that was a single screen. And, you know, there had been PDAs before it and all these crazy things. And Apple came out with a phone. And the implementation of that phone, though, was radical. And to me, what that said is like, wow, there's so much power in sneaking in a breakthrough product with the familiar framing, but it also requires confidence. Like Apple does it because they're confident. If you look at other companies like uh, Google or uh, Facebook, there's often a tendency to frame the thing that they're doing in bigger terms than the implementation. So you know, like That's so true. That's you, such a great point. You know, and I think I think what it comes down to is that Apple, I don't think, really cares about what the industry thinks. I think Apple cares about what consumers think. And I think that other companies are very easily caught up with what peers think. And to me, that's a difference. So it's like, yeah, it does it does require, you know, a bit of confidence that in time people will see the thing that you have in your mind. And probably comfort with who you are as a human right. and as a person to yeah. know internally. Totally. Finding your joy and satisfaction and fulfillment more internally than externally. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to take us in a different direction okay. right now because for those of you who don't know Joe, <laughs> Joe is an Apple fanboy. Yeah. You love Apple. I mean, I love Apple products, but you love Apple products. Yeah. You're making products you're making a product, you're making a new web, you're building for the internet. And Apple has rather famously not been a huge fan of uh, this World Wide Web that we are saying long live. How do you reconcile that? Uh, Not reconcile that, but how do you feel about that as someone who loves native software, loves Apple's approach, um, but is building for a web that maybe Apple's not as big a fan of? So it's true, I do love Apple. And I've loved Apple for... A long time, like over 20 years. And what I love about Apple is that they it's how they do things. The way that they approach problems is through human perspective. And they do it, they really push the envelope of quality. Now, the best kind of inspiration is one that outlives the thing that inspired you in the first place. So for example, Apple's ethos is always has always been about subversion and creativity. And so if you are actually inspired by Apple, like of course going to disagree with Apple. Right. Like that's the whole idea. I mean, I think in some ways it's like very American, right? Like this idea of like being a good American is criticizing Americans. Think different. Right. So to me, like being a fan of Apple is not being like dogmatic. I think it's the opposite. With all that said, I think there are areas where I agree with Apple less. Like, for example, when it comes to China and how they approach that. And there's a lot of other like product things like the app store. I mean, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but, uh, we're not sure anyone's (laughs) going to listen to this. So let's just go for it. (laughs) You know, the app store is a regulated garden and with an economic model that takes advantage of Apple's monopoly power. With that said, I actually think Apple's record on the web is pretty good. I think that you know, the original iPhone shipped with a web browser and it was the first mobile device to have a really good web browser in it. With WebKit, they've, you know, they built a really great framework for the web. Chrome wouldn't exist without Safari. Yeah, so like, I think Apple has actually embraced the web. I think it's available in all their products. I think the web allows Apple to be very rigid in what they allow in the App Store. So without the web, I think 
I don't think the iPhone would exist. Yeah, I, I would love to be a fly in the wall inside of Apple right now as it relates to their position on the web. A little tidbit of news yeah. I heard the other day that we will break live on yeah. this podcast. Safari yeah. is the most used piece of software that Apple makes by a pretty wide margin. Wow. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. But really, Apple wants you to go to their app store on desktop and download an application. Yeah. And everyone is using Safari and other web browsers on their desktop computers and their mobile phones more than anything else. And so if you're Apple and you know, you're right, they do credit where credit's due. They have a tremendous record on the web in many ways, but they don't want a world where the applications we use every day are accessed through a web browser. That's not the future they want. Yet their most popular piece of software they make is a web browser itself. It's just such a fascinating tension. Uh, if I would guess, I think there are probably two factions at Apple. I think there's a faction in Apple that cares about quality. And they say, we ultimately want the best quality software, the best quality experiences. And we believe that native software is the best way to do that. Remember, by the way, that when the iPhone first came out, it did not have an app store. You couldn't have native apps. And when Job announced the iPhone, people asked him, are you going to allow for web development? And he said, you can develop web apps and you can distribute them as web apps. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. So, you mean in his original presentation about it? I don't know if it was in the original keynote or as subsequent interview. But he said, want to make for the iPhone, make a web app? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the, the first, the iPhone was announced in January, 2007. And it was released in June of 2007. And then the App Store came out a year later, which is kind of amazing. In a year they built, you know. They, but um, so the biggest request when the iPhone came out was, we want third-party software. And Jobs said, great, make a web app. And they actually had this functionality that allowed you to go to a website and then save that website as a bookmark on your home screen. And that was their answer. <laughs> and people pushed back on that. So I actually think that Apple is less dogmatic about the way in which software is built. They care more about quality. With that said, we should also acknowledge that they do have a business and economic interest in people using the app store. And to Tim Cook is betting on services as the next growth right. lever too. So that's that's something where I would imagine that there are probably two two parts of Apple, but from what I've seen there, like I don't think they've handicapped the web at all. Like I think in fact they've made they made the web better on mobile devices year over year. So uh, I don't know that it's an either or in their mind. In terms of taking a moment and asking what could be, I often have this debate about native software versus web-based software all the time. We have a lot of people that love Apple on our team. Again, I love Apple and I tend to agree. If not, I, I wholeheartedly agree that generally speaking, native software is just much more enjoyable, fluid, and so on to use. I guess my perspective is it is inevitable that we are shifting to web-based software and web-based applications. I think it is a tidal wave that is only going to grow in size and there's no stopping it. So instead of saying which is better, I think the really interesting question for us, for you, for Apple is if native is better, how can you make the web feel more native or have some of those inherent properties and characteristics given that for a whole host of reasons, People are going to build for the web first and are building so, for the web so first. So why do you think, just like lay it out, why do you think web apps in this case are, are the sort of inevitable future? 
for many of the reasons that I think the web is such a wonderful construct. It is free to access from any device, from any software maker, which as a developer, as you know, it's really costly to make native software the traditional way. You got to hire a bunch of specialists on a bunch of different platforms. And as computing continues to proliferate, it might get much more complicated than just Apple software and Windows software and Android software, which is already a lot to reason with as a small company. With the web, you make it once. You make it once. And so I think it's free. It's accessible on all devices. You could keep going. But I, I think I think the primary one, if we were to just to take a kind of economic view on it, for people that are making things, making software, it is so much easier to just build it once and proliferate it across different platforms. Right. And those, that is cost. That is cost in terms of especially the user experience. And I think this is why Apple likes native software. Yeah. But, but wasn't that true in like 2012? That like making a web app was easier than making a native app? That's actually a great point. Why is it because internet's connection speeds have gotten better? Is it because web technology, you know, for something like Figma couldn't have existed then. Why do you think? I mean, because taking a step back, if you just look at our industry, if you look at the the world of technology startups and software startups specifically, it feels like there's been a huge shift towards making web-based software. And if there is a native application, especially on desktop, it tends to be an Electron app, which is actually just a white-labeled web browser that, you know, kind of looks like a native app. So why do you think there's been that shift? Because you're right, you, you know, you could have done that 10 years ago. I think that Mobile and desktop are different paradigms in this way. I think that applications that are used on mobile devices are more often than not native applications. We use the web on our phones, but it's less applications and it's more browsing, you know, documents, things like this, articles, commerce. However, on the desktop, if you're using an application, it's probably going to be in a web browser right? So whether that's Figma or Notion, and if it's not in a web browser, it's probably going to be like an Electron, an app that's actually using web code uh, natively. I actually don't think that's changed. I think on desktop, that has been the case more or less. There have been niche products on desktop like Sketch for Design that was a totally native app. Obviously, the Creative Suite has forever been you know, native. I think that's honestly just the browser being capable of, of running these things. Right. So to me, I would actually separate out mobile and and. That's and a great desktop. point. That's a great point. To flip it back though, do you spend more of your time thinking about the desktop Paradigm is that where, when you think about web apps being inevitable, it's you're most confident on web, yeah. on, on desktop. Yes, yeah. some of that is just inherent to the business that we're building and yeah. the stage where we're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on desktop, as I mentioned from the Safari news. <laughs> The browser is the center of the experience on desktop these yeah. days. On mobile, as you said, it's sort of a it's a it's a utility on the side. Now that may change, and in fact, some of the people that have been in the browser world the longest, for example, there's a guy named Alex Russell that used to be at Chrome, now actually works at Microsoft Edge, and the drum he's pushing the drumbeat of we could do everything you can do in native apps on iPhones in mobile in, a, in on the mobile web, like it should. I don't follow that debate as much and I don't have as strong an opinion. And if anything, I wonder if 
the properties of native software are much more acutely felt on mobile devices where you're using your fingers and gestures and and interacting with the screen in a much different way than the point and click cursor and keyboard. So to be honest, I haven't thought about it as much or I don't obsess over it as much, but on desktop, it just feels it, it just feels like why 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 would you make it just for the Mac? Why would yeah. you make it just for Windows? What is the benefit of it? Yeah. So I agree. I think by the way that you're right about the desktop being more forgiving for user experience. Uh, when you're using a, a pointer like a mouse, you're just inherently more forgiving than when you're you're touching the thing itself. I also think in general that people are more forgiving of experiences in web browsers than they are in native software. And when an animation is slightly delayed in a browser, you don't think twice about it. Like if something like, there's like a crash, you kind of don't, you just refresh. You don't think twice about it. So there's like a forgivingness in the in the browser that I actually think works towards developers' advantages. Whereas like when you're building an iOS app, things really need to be perfect. And that takes a lot, especially if you're a startup. So, you know, the way I think about this though, to me, it's not really, A, it's not an either or. B, it's not like an ideological thing. Right. Let's ask the question, okay, why did you build Universe as a native iOS app? It is not intuitive that you'd build a website builder that is a native app, because that's what Universe is. It's a native iOS app that lets you build websites. All the other website builders that are out there are not native apps. They're uh, web apps. They're desktop web apps. So why did we build a native iOS app? Well, the thesis at Universe was that people are using their phones as their primary computers, You should be able to build the internet from those computers. And if you're going to build the internet, if you're going to build a website from your phone, it's probably going to be through a native app. And that's how we can deliver the best experience for it. And so it was really just a very pragmatic question of like, what's going to be the best experience for doing this specific thing? Now, there are a lot of trade-offs that come with that, especially from like a business perspective. So, you know, if you're building a website on universe and that website exists and someone comes to that website, let's say someone sees that site and says, I want to build a website just like this. Well, if they're on an Android device, they cannot build a website like that. And even if they're on an iPhone, they have to now install a whole other app and it's a whole process. That's such a good point. I mean, in many ways, the URL is the most elegant, brilliant part of the World Wide web in terms of distribution and the experience of accessing and running an application. It is amazingly effortless. You can drop it in an iMessage and have it right away. To me, the killer feature of the web is distribution Yeah, by far. Yeah. It's actually, a as a point. platform, it's because it's not centralized or controlled by any one company, it's inferior in a lot of ways. And when I say inferior, I mean the boundaries are so open that good is possible, but also bad is possible. Right. You know, it, it, the, the, the possibility space is just infinite. But the killer feature is that no one owns it and that it's distributable everywhere. So the way I think about it is like people ask, are you going to make an app that lets people make apps? And we may do that at some point, but I'm not that interested in that right now. The reason is that I think very few companies should have their own app. Every company, every individual should have their own website, but very, very few should have their own app. Think about how many apps you install a month. It's not that many. Think about how many websites you experience a month. That is such a great point. (laughs) You know? So if you are now making a presence for yourself or your business, you want 
to tip the odds in your favor that that thing will be viewed. Right, 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 right. You want distribution. So how are you going to get distribution? You should make it for the most distributable thing, for the thing that's on every platform. Right. I also think that the web is, like I said, this thing that is available on every platform. So the, the, big, the big tech companies uh, all have access to the web. They're all reliant on the web. Like if you think about it, the iPhone doesn't work without a web browser. Right. Facebook doesn't work without links. Twitter, same. So in a way, it's this thing that keeps them all in check, the big companies. Like they really cannot be bad actors when it comes to the web because it's kind of like this nuclear pact. Electricity running through it all. <laughs> yeah. Like if, it, so they're weirdly dependent on this neutral thing. Like even if you take like Apple, when you ask Siri a question, it'll check the web and check Wikipedia for that thing. So like they can't fuck with the web because if they do, then it will start an arms race between the other companies and, and they'll all be worse or off. Right. So we have acknowledged it. It is much easier and more affordable for developers and creators to make for every single platform imaginable for the web than native software. So there is an accessibility and cost for developers making uh, software available to everyone. There's distribution, as we just talked about, and the elegance of a URL. I think the third, which we haven't touched on directly, is there's no 30% tax, right? Right. So Apple taking a cut of every app you sell through the, the, the app store is well covered. We don't need to go into it. But I think an interesting thought exercise is if Apple got rid of that 30% cut overnight, would this debate change? If Apple said, you know what, Mac, iPhone, iPad, app developers, it's free or it's 5% instead of 30%. Do you think that would give air quote native software a better chance at winning, winning the battle? Or do you think it's just not enough given the other reasons we talked about? I really think, let's just on, on the phone, I think the question of native versus web depends on what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So if you are building like a flashlight app, that's not going to be a web app. Right. It just doesn't make sense. The use case lends itself to it being a native app. But I, I do think that if Apple changed the economics of the app store, I think that certain use cases would stay on uh, on native. Like you can't buy a book in the Kindle app or on the Amazon app. Like if you click on an Amazon URL and you have Amazon on your phone installed and it's for a broom, it will open the Amazon app. But if you click a URL for a book, it will take you to the Amazon app and then it will quickly take you to Safari because you can't buy a book on the Amazon Which app. for a company, Apple, that cares about experience and quality is a horrible, frustrating yeah. experience. So that that's like, and that's just a quirk of Apple's rules. And I think if they relax that, that would obviously just be a native purchase. So I think that's a factor. But look, I think the other killer feature of the web is freedom. There is no gatekeeper. And this is, economics are a subset of that, of that gatekeeper relationship. But there's all kinds of other freedom. Like the fact that you don't need permission to put something on the internet is just, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's like the one place in the world that you can kind of do that. And because the marginal cost is really zero of putting something on the internet, it's just this truly free place. And that's not true from the app store. Every single app that is created and put in the app store is approved by a human who works for Apple. Wild. Right? Like, so, and by the way, this is not just about like nefarious things. It's not just about, you know, adult content and stuff that like illicit stuff. 
When you have a gatekeeper, if you have someone editing everything that goes out, it inherently constrains creativity. Like the boundaries of what's possible immediately go down. You know, like and Apple itself knows it. It is a company that pioneered. If you remove even the tiniest points of friction, the things it unlocks is magical. Exactly. So I think that that freedom is more important today than ever. Like, I think that's why the web is so vital. Like, I think even outside of just the technical discussions of where you build applications, I think the permissionless nature of the web is a miracle. It is a miracle that we have this forum. I think that more of the internet, so outside of the web, should resemble the web. Right, like I think things like Twitter should look like the web, meaning it shouldn't be controlled by a single person. And I think that we'd have a lot more human flourishing if that was true. I totally agree. Imagine listening to a podcast and not hearing an ad for a website builder. You'd be like, what kind of podcast is this? We know you need your fix and we're not gonna deprive you of that. At Universe, we believe websites are the main event, so of course we'd sandwich one in between our show. Here's the deal. Websites are dope, everyone needs one, and they can actually be fun to build and have some personality behind them. This is the part of the ad where I rattle off a list of all the things our website building product can do for you in hopes that you choose Universe over the competition. Create sites, build stores, analytics, email shipping off from your phone feels like playing with Legos, all that good stuff. We got it. I mean, you can make sites so good you'll shit yourself, but that's just brass tacks. At Universe, a website is so much more than just something you hear about on a podcast commercial. It's an extension of self. It's a way to interact creatively with the digital world. And we're hell-bent on helping the internet live up to its full potential. A more eclectic, more electric place. Because the internet shouldn't just be a space for squares. Grab a domain like .xyz and show those .com boomers what the internet's all about. Head to Universe. That's universe.se, but the dot is silent. Punch those puppies into the app store, my friend, and we'll see you out there. One thing I want to ask you about, because I've seen you grow in this way and I've grown in this way, is when I was starting my career, I hated the idea of thinking about money yeah. and business models. To me, it felt like selling out and the opposite of the creativity. Mm. The opposite of creativity was money. Yeah. And I've grown up a lot and realized I've actually found some of my greatest sources of inspiration from looking at business models and financial structures of companies and markets and products and incentives to actually find the 10x better user experience or, or wildly imaginative possibilities, but actually through the lens of what are the incentive structure of this company, this business model, this product. And I've seen you change in that way as well. How do you think about business models and making money and revenue as potentially a creative Lego? Whereas if, if you agree in the past, I think you and I started our careers probably obsessing mostly over colors and interactions and gestures and that stuff still gets me going in you as well. But I think both of us have found a newfound yeah. source of inspiration in, in money. How do you, how do you think about well, that? Well, you know, I, 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 to your point, I've often, you know, I've long thought about this dialectic and struggled with it. And it's actually one of the themes of this podcast is the intersection of creativity and commerce. I actually have a, I have just a, a, I think a pretty different opinion than consensus on this, which is that commerce and creativity are friends and that they actually feed each other. That if you have a 
strong business model, you can be ever more creative. And that creativity and ingenuity fuels commerce. That's how you make money. And so I think that there are entrenched interests that have created the concept that these things are at odds. And I think it comes from the art world, frankly. I think that creativity, the beacon of creativity is often thought of as like artists, painters, visual artists, and the art world. And if you just look at the art world, like it's totally taboo for any artist to talk about money. And you might ask why that is. And there's probably some aspect of that which is like, you know, you, you, you want your artist to be thinking in, in, in principles and high-minded stuff. But also, if you are a collector of art, um, meaning you are a buyer of artists' work, products, you don't want the seller, the artist, to be thinking about money. You want a good deal, <laughs> right? And you also want to stay in control. And for as long as the artists are not capitalists, the capitalists will win. The artists need to become capitalists. And when the artists become capitalists, I think the art will get better because it will be more free, right? Like if you are at the end of the day subject to the whims and desires of capital, then you are, you know, you're indebted to that. Yeah, I mean, that is actually the original, one of the original sources of inspiration for making a web browser. Because before the browser company, if you had told me I was going to make a web browser in 2021, 10 years ago, I would have said what went horribly wrong with my career. Mm. <laughs> but because it just sort of felt like it was settled. Mm. You know, web browsers hadn't changed. They'd been around for so long. And then we learned the reason that was true were business model incentives. Yeah. Because essentially Chrome and Safari, because Apple makes their money from Safari by getting a check from Google. Right. They're one big search box for those two companies because that's how they make their money. So the reason the browser hasn't changed mm. isn't because it shouldn't or couldn't, yeah, but because the incentive structure of those companies and those products are such that they're not incentivized to do it. They're incentivized to keep it as minimal as possible, keep it unchanged, keep it one big search box. So there's just a great example. That's what changed for me. It was like, oh my goodness. Imagine the wondrous possibilities and more just learning that, oh, the world works that way, not because it needs to, mm. but because that's how the money flows. What else is possible? I think that's a great point. And I hadn't thought about uh, the design of a web browser being a reflection of the way that web browsers make money, which is through Google search. Yeah. I mean, we just hired the, the Chrome started as a rendering engine now called Chromium. And one of the three people that built the original prototype of that Chromium rendering engine and went on to run Chrome for over a decade just joined the browser company. Mm. And one of the interesting things about that is he wasn't wowed by our ideas and the right. ingenuity and all these things we thought of. He said, I've been wanting to do that for so, all these ideas, these are the things I wanted to do, we wanted to do. We were just held back by Alphabet's business model. I want to finally do that. Hmm. And it, that's, uh, the reason I say that isn't to, you know, hawk the browser company, but what else is out there in the world like that? Hmm. Things, products that we rely on every day 
that sort of feel settled. I mean, I'm looking right now at the corner, you got a bike leaning up against the wall. I've never thought about the bike market. Mm. How do bike companies make money? What might a bike look like if you made money in a different way? So it just, it was this like big unlock for me, unfortunately, later in my life that was, wait, some of the most profound changes yeah. and fun possibilities might come from saying, how do they make money? What do their investors want in a way that I never would have thought when I was 20? You know, I, I honestly think that's that's really smart. By the way, Josh, you're still at the very beginning of of your your life. I mean, we're talking we're talking about a man in how old, how old are you? Thirty two. Yeah, true. Okay. True. 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 Um, fair. 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 So, but but I think I my think, wife tells me I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So, <laughs> thank you, Valerie. I think, I think that um, I've long believed that the most consequential decision that a business makes is what its business model is, and everything comes from that. So, for example, if you look at Facebook, like all of Facebook's decisions will come from its business model, which are selling you know selling ads. I like to think about Facebook not as a social network, but as a store, a store that sells other people's time. Facebook is a store that sells other people's time and it has any kind of time you want sharded in any number of ways by the the qualities of that time. And if you think about it that way, then Facebook's inventory is someone else's time. A business is only can only be as as big as the inventory that it has. So Facebook's incentive is to just grow its inventory, which is stealing more of your time. Yeah. When I worked at Facebook, they would literally put up a pie chart and it would be a person's day, yeah. like sleeping, literally bathroom was a sliver on this pie chart. And the conversation at Facebook, which is when I knew I had to go was mm. how do we get more of this chart? Right. That was the mandate. <laughs> that was the mission. And frankly, I think I, th I actually do think that there are business models that are virtuous. And I think that there are business models that are exploitive. And I think the Facebook one is mostly exploitive. And, and I think that you will, so they're predictive. But the thing that I hadn't thought about, which I think is really interesting, is using that idea as a filter to find opportunity. To say, what, what categories right now are indebted to a, a business model that is hostile to people? Yeah, if I were to, st if I were to start another company today, uh, that is the exercise I would do. Right. I would go and look at my favorite products, most used products, the mm. most valuable. And I mean, however you want to do it and say, how do they make money? And what incentives right. do that lead to? And and if you had a different set of incentives, what pro what alternative universe might that lead to? And again, I have I, I honestly haven't done this mm. exercise because I'm I'm busy at the browser company, but I just think there's it's really exciting. I mean, hopefully you can hear in my voice the possibilities. And I think it's also not discussed enough that if you look at some of the most successful companies, they innovated on their business model just as much as they innovated on the product experience. Yeah. So So I think the internet presents an interesting version of this question because internet business models have not been obvious. And if you look at like the history of internet business models over the past 25 years, really advertising was the big model, you know, and, and enterprise software. I think we're at a moment now where new business models are possible. For example, Universe is a direct-to-consumer software subscription, it's SaaS, which I, I want to hear more about the, the browser one. But I wonder if in the physical world, for example, business models are fairly settled, like they, you know, they, they're direct to consumer. And if this is just a uniquely internet oriented question. I don't think so. Mm. I, I, do you? 
No, I mean, let's just think about some other, let's think about some other categories that we think have business models that have some assumptions that can be challenged. I mean, I'll, gi- I'll give you an example. Yeah. One that I, in another life or maybe later in my life would love to do. I have, I grew up in Los Angeles. I've lived mostly in big cities. I love restaurants. I love restaurants. <laughs> I love eating probably too much. And I was talking to a friend um, who helped his buddy set up a new restaurant in the Bay Area. And it is one of the top 10 restaurants. It was named one of the top 10 new restaurants in the year. Mm. Wildly successful. You cannot imagine opening a new restaurant and having a bigger success. Barely breaks even, right? if that. And it's packed every night. It caters to a, you know, a consumer with a lot of money that buys natural wine and it can barely make money. And if you think about all of the business models on the internet and where the enterprise value comes from, time spent, transactions, repeat visits, central to your day in life. What a, a restaurant isn't smack dab in the middle of that. What in that business model feels malleable? I don't know. I, I, I right. don't know. And th- th- so what is so fun about the exercise is you really got to, mm. we had to get deep in the history of web browsers mm. and the companies that make right. web browsers for us to understand it in that category. I'm not going to be able on this podcast to, I don't know enough, but for right. example, I saw, I forget how many years ago, someone was trying, maybe they still are. I hope it's working a membership subscription model to a local restaurant. So for example, when I lived mm. in Fort Greene, Olea was half a block and I loved Olea. It was like the best neighborhood spot. Mm. We knew the waitresses and the waiters and it just, it, it, was, it was a part of the fabric of my life. And the way that I reflected that was I paid them for my potatoes. Is that the best way to monetize right. that time and love and relationship? I And so the idea was, hey, I would subs- I would be a member of Olea, like I'm a member of NPR, and I'd pay Olea, you know, I don't know, 10 bucks a month. And I would still pay for the food, but I get some set of things. Now, context bias for everyone listening to this, I'm on the board of Patreon and have been for a bunch of years. So I'm fascinated by the idea of membership and just other business models. So I, d- does that work for restaurants? Could you do Patreon for restaurants? I don't know. But I just, I don't, I, first principles, I don't know any reason why there's so much business model innovation on the internet and with digital businesses, why couldn't it be true for physical other than, again, it takes, one of the things you said to me the other night at dinner that I will probably never forget in my entire life is you said the smartphone was inevitable, but the iPhone was not. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that you learn as you get a little bit older is everyone's just making it up. It's just a bunch of humans behind all of this. And so it takes someone to say, I'm going to invent a new business model for restaurants to do it. Right. And I just think it is inevitable that it will happen I, at yeah, some I point. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think the, the your point about not knowing the answer up front is also really right, which is to say, like, if you have an idea, to me, like, I think projects are worth doing when you're really interested in a question, but the point of the company is to answer the question or you know, the point of the project is, is to answer the questions. It would be naive to think you could answer the question at the onset, like your question is, you know, how can you build a better browser? I presume, but the answer to that is what you're exploring. Yeah, but there's so much cultural pressure to have answers. I'll give you, I'll share some constructive feedback I got the other day. It was from the co-CEO of Atlassian. Mm. Um, And Atlassian, for people that don't know, is a pioneer in so many ways we take for granted. This Australian company called Atlassian invented SaaS. (laughs) They pioneered so many things, including novel business models. And the last, you know, the CEO uses Arc and 
And, and I, you know, have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And the way that we have been telling people we're going to make money and we mean it is we're going to, we're going to have arc for teams and you're going to pay five bucks a month or charge your company five bucks a month to get this really great SaaS software. And I told this to the guy who invented SaaS software, right. thinking this was a layup. And he, in a very polite, constructive, kind way was, he essentially, he didn't say this directly. He said in a very kind way, how unimaginative uh-huh. as a company that is, you know, known for be trying to become known for doing things differently. You're then going to come to me and say, you're going to copy paste some business model just because culturally that's what everyone's talking about right now. Mm. And it's so true. It's so true, but you get that pressure. You go to a party, you pitch and invest you. How are you going to make money? How are you going to make money? You can't help, but say, look around what is easily understood to people around me. What do other people do? What is culturally acceptable to do? Be like, we're going to charge five bucks a month or we're going to show ads or we're going to, you know, and so that's not to say that there was a wrong. And I still think there's a very good chance that's how we make money. But to your point of, if you assume you don't know, which is one of our company's values and you ask what could be, start by asking what could be, which is one of our company's values. There is no way the only four business models on the internet are payments, ads, et cetera, et cetera. I just, they, that can't yeah, be true. They can't be true. You know, it's interesting because I think Maybe it's too hard to innovate on business models. Even me, you know, I've been thinking about business models for a long time, went to business school, all that. But I, I think that it's actually kind of hard to think about new, completely novel business models. And just yeah. to be clear, though, yeah. the novelty, I think, doesn't come from no one has made money in this way before. It's the novel application, most likely, of mm-hmm. business models from other places. So taking basically, there's, there is a so. range of business models. Can you fit them to an area that doesn't necessarily use that? Thing? Yeah, or take aspects of different ones. Right, but there's no library of business models that you can even reference. Sounds like an opportunity. I, I mean, this, this is why this podcast, the yeah. intersection of creativity and commerce. And I think the other thing, and you know, this is uh, something we think about culturally is, this, as you said, the sorts of people that fashion themselves artists, creative yeah. people, they tend to get energy from aesthetics mm. and things of that nature. And those are the people that really think differently. They're the ones mm. that go, what if you, what if you rounded it? Mm. What if it, what if it, what if it vibrated? They're mm, the ones right. that let their imaginations wander, that childlike imagination. Mm. And on the other hand, you know, they're business people, the people that r- really could tell you that would, that would listen to this podcast and go, that guy has no idea what he's talking mm-hmm. about. There are 17 business models and here's the history of that. Right. But, you know, stereotypically, those are not the people that have that childlike imagination and desire to change things and to mess with things and make mistakes and fail. Now, I'm, I'm generalizing and I'm stereotyping. But so I think that is the huge opportunity. And that's what I was saying before it. If you can take that love of haptic feedback and colors and rounded corners and mm. and all that stuff and apply that same imagination to business models, there's got to be so much that could come out of yeah. that. Have you ever heard of a book called The Pattern Language? Yes, the Christopher Alexander yeah. one. Yeah. So, right, for those who don't know what it is, The Pattern Language is a book by an architectural professor who is named uh, Christopher Alexander. And he introduced a pretty like radical notion of architecture. And he said like the best architecture is not built by architects. It's built by ordinary people using a kit of parts that has been 
created over generations in a particular village or neighborhood or way. And so he goes and he studies communities in Greece and Japan and these these structures that have this quality of life. They have this, he calls it a quality without a name. And it's amazing that people who have no degree in architecture or specific skill set are able to create these structures. And the way that they're able to create them is that they are using what he calls a pattern. And a pattern is like a, a kit of parts, almost like Legos. So for example, you know, the best rooms are ones where there are windows on at least, I think it's like uh, two connecting sides. Uh, so like uh, two edges of the room. That's just a piece of knowledge that has been created in that community and is passed on. Like if you had to come up with that on your own from scratch, you'd have to go to architecture school. So, so he published this book called A Pattern Language, and it's basically just a book of patterns. And it has like, you know, here's how you make a door, like all the different ways you can do this. Or here's how you can do an antechamber, et cetera, a patio. You can imagine a pattern language for businesses. Yes, and imagine a pattern language for businesses geared toward the person that hasn't historically found creative energy from anything related to business. If you wrote it for the world-class design engineer that loves Swift UI and loves haptic feedback, and you wrote the pattern language book for for business models, I just think, I think, what, what would they dream up? Another anecdote I've been thinking about a lot recently is we had a really, really great past few months of growth, um, really the second half of last year. And a lot of that growth came from our, what we call our unboxing experience, our onboarding flow. We just went to town on it. And Mm. really we have this, we, we say, you know, we optimize for feelings instead of metrics of the browser company, which is a little, a little dramatic. But in other words, what we're saying is we really want you to Download Arc, open it, and just be wowed. And a lot of our growth just came Mm. from word of mouth of people responding to those first three seconds. And a lot of people are impressed by what we've done. And really, all that we did was we looked at films and movies Mm. and said, the intro sequence... You know, the the way the Pixar lamp comes and goes like that. And just the first 30 seconds, we looked at film basically and just took very light surface level guidance from another industry and another type of cultural media product and said, hey, what if you applied that to a startup? And it wowed people. And the reason I'm saying it wowed people is I don't think it's that impressive. I just think what it did is it took this pattern from film and applied it to software onboarding. And that application was novel. And so- I think there are pattern languages and business models, but where else, what else can you pull from? Whether it's architecture, you just talked about architecture, film, you know, that to me is at this point, the web, while the best days of the web, and I think the internet and software are undoubtedly ahead of us and the world of software in 10 years will look very different. We've been making iPhone apps for a while, you mm-hmm. know? And so I really think that the source of a lot of the ingenuity and creativity and change, or I hope this year and going forward, will mm-hmm. be will be pulling those patterns from these other worlds mm-hmm. and bringing them into software, whether it is business models or onboarding flows. No, it's really cool. I mean, and I'd say another theme of this podcast is just polymath thinking, you know, like taking taking inspiration from other areas and synthesizing you know, what I what I can't help but thinking about is, you know, Universe is a web builder. Inclusive of that is we have a commerce tool, which allows you to sell things on your website. Our commerce tool right now is pretty straightforward, and it's pretty narrow in the kinds of business models that it supports. You can sell 
mostly physical products. And it's an amazing way to do that, right? You could very simply post a product that someone can buy, build your inventory, have sizes, you know, charge for shipping, all that stuff. You can literally ship it on your phone. But you could imagine something that was like built into the universe app, a pattern language of business models that you, you know, if you're an artist or a musician or if you're a fashion designer, we could actually have a menu of ways to make money. Like maybe, maybe a, um, a fashion designer could actually have a subscription. A hundred percent. I mean, you, I remember you told me, I forgot if they made pickles or there's someone that has a universe site yeah. that made some sort of food product that you were right. raving to me about. Yeah. What was it? Key lime pie. Key lime pie. Yeah. It was great. Kate's key, li- key lime. Kate's key lime. Shout out. It's amazing. Link in bio. Best key lime pie you've ever had. Yeah. yeah. What if Kate, when she was making her universe site said, I want to do subscription Yeah. or I want to do per key lime pie or again, I don't I just, one of the things I've taken from Apple is they're so generous with giving building blocks away. In many ways, you and I have a career because Apple said, go for it. You know, even Swift UI most recently, tremendous. And every time new building blocks are given away to the internet, to people, things we couldn't have imagined come out of it. Obviously with the iPhone and you think the location sensor and things like Uber and DoorDash and all those things, that was Apple saying, here's a new Lego block and you can almost can't imagine. And so at the very least, we can agree that business models have not been historical Lego blocks that are as easy to give away as these other things. I don't know what would come of it, but something would. You know, it touches would. on something that we've been thinking about. Because as a startup, it's very difficult for us to build very easy-to-use interfaces for every kind of known business model. There's just, even if you take something like physical commerce, our product right now offers a fraction of what you could do with Shopify in, in terms of complexity, because Shopify has been doing this thing for 20 years. And we don't even support international merchants, people who are selling things outside the U.S., because you have to build for the particularities of each region. So it's actually a lot of work. That's even just within physical commerce to support the array of things. Let's just add two others, subscriptions and appointments. Those are two whole other worlds. You take subscriptions, you've got digital and physical, you've got... Um, What's the delivery method? What type of product is it? How do you deal with variants? I don't even know the intricacies because we haven't dived into subscriptions. So one of the challenges is that it's actually hard for a company like ours to even present those with our resources. With that said, you know, one of the things we've sort of updated our thinking on is we had this approach that like, you know, if you want to do business on your site, because people asked universe to build a commerce tool, we should really privilege a first party way of transacting on universe sites. And we oriented the company around that. And we still have an amazing commerce tool. We're going to continue to invest in it, but we've actually changed our thinking for the time being on this, which is to say, we're never going to know all the possible business models. And we're certainly not going to have the resources as a small company to build ground up first party solutions for every type of commerce that can happen on the internet. So we're going to find the best services out there and we're going to present them to our users and make them available. So whether that's Patreon for content subscriptions or, you know, something for appointments, we've actually shifted our approach there and how we're thinking about it. Awesome. I have a theory people often think about the history of computing as being a story about computers 
getting smaller and faster and cheaper. But I actually think that the history of computing is about power and really about the pendulum swing of power between institutions and individuals. So if you think about the first computers, they were for the military. And they were literally room-sized machines of war uh, that allowed governments to successfully prosecute uh, their enemies. And then they became the instruments of the biggest businesses in the world. Like IBM is international business machines. And... They cost millions of dollars in today's... Yeah, millions of dollars. And then... You know, in the 60s and the 70s, you had the personal computer revolution. And that revolution was about individual agency. It was about a computer could be used not as an instrument of big business or big institutions, but as a tool for humans to get power and to shape the world around them. And it wasn't a coincidence that those computers were created in San Francisco, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in the 60s and 70s, during the counterculture movement. These guys were tripping LSD and thinking about how the world could be different. And the computer became this tool for them to do that. And so then the PC takes off as this sort of bicycle for the mind, um, but then, you know, gets co-opted again by big business. The pendulum swings back, you know, Microsoft, right? And the era of Windows and Office software. And then the web comes around. And again, the pendulum swings back to the individual. Um, and now anyone can publish, any, any schmuck in their apartment can publish a website, can build an app. Facebook itself was built by a college student. And then the pendulum swung again back to the individual. But of course, Facebook grows up, Google grows up, they become big companies, and now you've got institutional power again. And then you have a new day. Let's mobile. swing it back. Yeah. Let's swing it back. <laughs> so now, so now, so mobile restarted the clock again. Instagram itself was a little startup, you know, sold to Facebook. They had what, 10 employees or something? WhatsApp but, as well. You know, and now, and now it swung back. Now, now tech is is very much the instrument of, of big institutions. But I, I do believe we're on the cusp of, uh, of a shift. I, I agree. This is the most, we're recording this on January 4th, and this is the most optimistic and excited I've been for an upcoming year in terms of what we might see yeah. in the technology industry in a long time. Because I feel like in the past couple years, something just felt a little bit stale, a little yeah. bit boring. I don't mean to you know, overgeneralize. There were lots of remarkable things, yeah. especially through the lens of COVID and everything that that changed, especially culturally. But I just feel like we're on the precipice right now. I, I, it's, I, and I, 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 don't know, I don't know how you feel, but yeah. I just have this intrinsic sense of optimism about what might come next because it feels like both from a technological perspective and from a cultural perspective, it feels like we're on the verge of something new. <laughs> I agree. I, <laughs> I agree, but I also don't know what it, like, what's exciting to me about it is that I don't see it fully. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And I think in some ways I don't, I, I have no personal moral stance on crypto and Web3, good, bad. That's, but, but I think in many ways it captured so much oxygen in the room that in some ways I think it's – that's one of the reasons I'm optimistic is the people – that there's undoubtedly going to be a lot of energy put into that as a potential future. But I think the, the, the chinks in the armor and the deflating of that balloon a bit are going to leave open a lot of white space for the next entrepreneurs and the next creative people to say – what are the building blocks I should use? What should, what should I build? What well, should I, I actually make? think that, you know, the crypto boom 
was in part fueled by speculation, but the genuine parts were really fueled, I think, by an idealism and a yearning for an individual as opposed to institutional internet. Um, and it became this sort of vessel for all of these ideas. And I think because it's so intrinsically tied to economics, it really lends itself to speculation. And so when you have that boom that then busts, that energy can actually find its way into other things. Yeah, and that's actually why, if I'm being totally honest, I am not someone that was ever and has ever gotten excited by blockchains and crypto. But you've never seen me say anything negative publicly about it Mm. because I'm actually deeply inspired by the aspiration and the idealism and the, I think the greatest contribution of that community to the broader discourse is it is possible to question everything and say, what if we started over? So whether or not I believe that blockchains and crypto will be the answer or whether or not I'm right, I just love that energy, which is fuck it. Let's do something different. Let's do something new. It's time for change. And I actually think when I've talked to most of my friends in that community, I don't know if this is your experience. That's the fire in their belly. That's what they wax poetic about. And that is, I think, a cultural, a social shift going on. I think the culture precedes the, the technology. Absolutely. And I think that the culture found a home in crypto as an avenue, but I actually think that crypto and web three, because it's such a nascent technology, is actually not a good vessel for most of these ideas to take form. Right. There's so much space available using existing technologies that can better serve, you know, people. Right. We talk about decentralization, the World Wide Web. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like that, that's one of the amazing things in terms of long live the web. And, and my belief in the web is the future and the great platform in front of us is, hey, we care about decentralization. We care about freedom of speech. Whatever is the the web, that is totally. the web. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, you know, I think there are different kinds of decentralization. Like technical decentralization is important, but it's only one kind, right? For example, creative decentralization. If at the end of the day, even if you had a technically decentralized system, if everyone's output looks the same, then that's not really decentralized. Like you don't have individuality in that in that s- system. Also, I think you know another thing that is not talked about really in uh, the decentralization topic is user experience and and the accessibility of decentralization like i think decentralization is a little bit like um organic food you know where organic food was a thing in the 70s but like it was really only for the most determined hippies right and over time it's become something that's much more accessible because of things like whole foods and because the value of it was made clearer to people so i think that that's what like decentralization needs. You know, at Universe, I, I, I would love in the full, fullness of time for the Universe network to be technically decentralized where we do not control the network. Yeah, the technology the thing, is not there. Yeah. And one of the reasons I love the browser space is no single company will ever control the World Wide Web. Right. And no single browser. I think, I think mm. the moment we're in today is the most 
market control by a single player of the browser space we're ever going to see. Mm. And even that, think about That's how many- That's a hot bra- take right there. Yeah. I think, I, and again, I th- we are going to build a really big business. I'm yeah. very optimistic yeah. about our prospects. I don't want to control 60% mm. of the market. I think that defeats the purpose of the World mm. Wide Web. Mm. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. Um, and one of the things that I, I want to go back to is you mentioned culture leads technology. Yeah. Um, and I could not agree more. I think yeah. few people talk about that. As someone who grew up in Los Angeles, and really my first love in many ways was going to films with my Mm. family. Why do you think people don't talk about software as a cultural product like they do a book or a film or a painting? It's almost, I feel feel like culturally or historically, people have put technology products in this like utility bucket, you know, almost like a hammer or a wrench. When it, when I think about software much, much closer to a film or a TV show or a book. And one of the things we talk about, as I said before, is about optimizing for feelings. You know, Mm. when you watch a film, the film's not solving a problem for you. It's not about efficiency and utility. It's about an emotional response. It's about making a point, sharing a perspective, making you feel a certain way. Do you think that's overly romantic or, or why, why historically have we put software products in this, in this bucket of util, utilitarian tools that must do things efficiently versus something like a film or a book that is about feeling and it is about emotion and is it about uh, sharing a perspective? Why do you, and in many ways, the properties of it are much more similar in terms of the aesthetics and the interactivity and the, I, yeah, what, what's your take on that? I think, I think you're right. And I think that it's because we're just early. I think the internet's still very young. I think we're in the teenage years of the internet. And I think if you look at a medium like film, it's had 100 years to develop. And I think it's also because the ways that you create software have historically been very esoteric and really only manipulable by people who think in code, think in a very particularly abstract way. Yep. That, um, of course, the people who are making software are going to make things that are not visual, that are um, very pragmatic and functional above all else. I think that this is just the maturity. And I think technology has gotten to the point where it used to be that innovation happened mostly at the technical level. But I actually think today innovation happens at the design layer. Like, yeah, of course we're pushing the envelope of the technology, but it's driven by design goals. And so... Uh, that is a shift. And I, th- I think your point about the creativity in the software world has largely been limited to people that can program and can code. And the sort of personality historically that was drawn to that had a certain worldview or a certain set of sensibilities. And I think accessibility is a big key in terms of unlocking a lot of this creativity and wondrous new possibilities we're excited about. And I think you see that even with something like Notion yeah. and Notion templates. And this is where I think you Universe was yeah. ahead of the curve on, on the themes behind things like Notion. But if you go look at the Notion template ecosystem, if you just type Notion template into YouTube search, for example, it is wild what you see and the creativity that people are making with these building blocks. Replit is another great example. That's, you know, that's still code, but even just removing the friction and, and making it more accessible and easier to use. I, I think the, the I think these these new these new worlds that are going to be invented are going to come probably from folks who uh, making software would have been inaccessible or more inaccessible in the past. Um, I, I, I just can't wait. Yeah, to Yeah, I see. mean, the expression is like, you know, there's this quote of like, we shape our tools thereafter they shape us. And 
so we are a product of the tools that we have. And the output is determined by tools. That's why I'm interested in technology and why I like making tools. It's because if you change the tools, you're going to change the output. Like at the end of the day, we think about the great forms of art and media that we have. They're entirely shaped by technology. Film is a technical medium, right? Like, and there's a whole world of film that has resulted from that. The internet and software is this magical thing that allows us to create new media within it. You know, any allows anyone to invent that. Um, and so I think we're just at the very beginning. And I think, you know, one way I think about it is like in the world of making uh, like no code tools or, or things like this, I think there are really two frameworks to think about it. One is how can you make the machine more human? So meaning how can you take like the, the machine itself doesn't speak English doesn't even speak code. It speaks it speaks assembly, right? Like it speaks the it speaks the language of zeros and ones, binary electrical pulses, and then we have assembly on top of that as an abstraction, and then you have you know super low level operating systems, and you keep going up the stack until you have a scripting language like Python or something like HTML and, and JavaScript, and then only then you might have something like Webflow, which it exposes the properties of CSS, but it's in a visual format. So you're still, you're starting with the machine and you're building layers of abstraction on top of how the machine works that are more human. I am much more interested in starting with the human and saying, how does a human's brain work and how can we fit that to technology? So how can we start, okay, people want to put a blue square there. So they should be able to put a blue square there. They don't have to know what what CSS is. I love the focus on humanity. And yeah. I, I, I think what you said about, if you think about the film industry and films at this point in the evolution of filmmaking, you know, what was, what, what, go watch a film from the 40s and 50s yeah. or even 60s compared to today. And I think I came into this conversation very giddy and excited for this year, but I think letting your mind wander to how far films have come since the 60s, and how cool they felt in the 60s, it's really exciting to see what comes well, next. Well, to me, the, the, the promise, like I was working on no-code stuff since before it was called no-code, but the promise of it is to say, look at what has happened to the world over the past 20 years. And the world has been radically revolutionized because of the internet in so many ways. Infinite knowledge available to anyone, but the products and the things that have been made on the internet have been ultimately made by a very small subset of people who live in the Silicon Valley area and think in a very specific way. So what would happen if you empowered every user of the internet to become a builder? Like you, you just have a meta, a meta revolution. Yeah. And I think way. that is another pendulum that is swinging mm -hmm. back. That is so exciting is I think we had a, we had a decade of consumption, right? You know, when I, when I grew up on the internet, when you grew up on the internet, it was much more active, you yeah. know, in some senses, it was much more focused on information retrieval, but really we're messing out with HTML and MySpace pages. Yeah. And, um, then I think, you know, in this world of social networks, it's been a decade of consumption yeah. largely, right. And about experiencing an environment that someone else created and consuming within it and streaming. I think we're, I think the pendulum is switching back to a much more active participatory, the internet is a generative medium, whether or not that's no code or, or, yeah. or other things. So, but that, I, yeah, that's really exciting. I, was just gonna say, I, I think what is leading to this is, you know, we just went through a hell of a five years, right? Yeah. Like, and uh, between COVID and everything else, I think that people 
have really lost trust in institutions. And those institutions are melting. Like these things that we thought of as the pillars of civilization, we've realized that actually they're not in a lot of ways and they're really behind the ball. And so I think in some ways that's scary because these are the things that upheld society. But in other ways, it's completely freeing. So because freeing. Because those, those institutions are, are molten. They're, they're to be formed. And we're living in a moment. The reason why I'm so optimistic right now is because not only is the technology there, but there's this meta-awareness that the way things have been will not work for the future. And the environment is such that it is manipulable. Like the Overton window of possibility is the widest it's ever been in my lifetime. I think it's probably the widest in a hundred years that it's been. I mean, this was the thing about COVID. You may have been the one that, that pointed this out to me, but COVID... I hope I don't even have to say how horrible an experience it was for for the world in many ways, in most ways. But I think a silver lining was overnight saying, actually, as a society, as a world, as humanity, we're going to play by totally different rules. Everything is going to change overnight. And I think in in many ways, in most ways, it changed for the worse. But in many ways, it said, whoa, look, if you do it like this, you get this response or this experience. And I think- that showed literally everyone in the world that something other ways are possible. There are other ways to live. 100%. There are other ways to do things. And just in the same way, this goes back to the business model conversation. I could never look at a web browser the same way again. Once I learned it hadn't mm. changed, not because it was perfect mm. or done, but because there were incentives. I think COVID has shown everyone in the world that anything that works a certain way can be changed. Mm. And if you change it, it will lead to different effects, some of which may be good, some of which may be bad, but the possibilities that open up, it opens up and the, I think imagination it opens up for people is, uh, is, uh, is, is really exciting to think about. And I also think there's a, a kind of fuck it attitude coming yeah. out of COVID. 100%. We've all been cooped up. We've all, and so I think there's just, an, there's a really exciting energy right now. And I think, should we, should we go get sushi? <laughs> <laughs> we probably should. I think that's a good note to end on. And I have a feeling that this won't be our last show. I really hope not. Thank you for having me, Joe. All right, Josh. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Internet Misfits. I hope you found the conversation inspiring, helpful, energizing, and insightful. You can find me on the web to continue the conversation on my personal site, joe.universe, which is joe.universe. U-N-I-V-E-R dot S-E. See you out there. Bye-bye.